I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Recorded in front of a live audience in the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington, it's Livewire with Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson, writer and advice columnist Dan Savage, comedian Jesse Klein, music from Aaron Jones and our fabulous house band, and now the host of Livewire. He's usually against the brain, but today is his cheat day, Luke Burbank. Ah, yes, my hometown, where they traditionally pronounce Luke as boo. (laughs) Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody, for being here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. We have a great show for you. The theme that we've picked for this hour is Against the Grain. We're going to be talking to some people who have thought differently than the prevailing wisdom. Also... I would bet good money that there is a gluten-free bakery somewhere in Seattle called Against the Grain. If there isn't, that's just a freebie. I went to college like two blocks from here at the University of Washington, and I was really ready to go against the grain when I got to the UW as it related to what the prevailing scientific wisdom was in the world. Because when I got to the UW as a freshman on day one, I believed deeply and truly in my heart that the earth was 5,000 years old, 6,000 tops. (laughs) Maybe 6,500, depending on some things that need to be retested. I had gotten this in my head because I went to an evangelical Christian high school that taught us a variety of things that were scientifically questionable, including the fact that the uh, world was going to end very soon and that we could heal people. This was not exactly Phillips Exeter Academy. Three people after that joke, they probably went to Phillips Exeter Academy. Um, I have to say... I I had behavioral issues in high school, and I feel like some of that is a responsibility of the high school that taught me that the world could end at any minute. (laughs) 
because if I think the world is going to end and I'm freshman year Luke Burbank in high school, I don't want the world to end without the toilets in the teacher's lounge being plugged up. I don't want to go out like that. So there were a lot of questionable scientific theories being floated at this place, and in order to support them, they had taught us a couple of little, like, sort of gotcha factoids that we could throw out to people who didn't believe us, to people who thought the Earth was, in fact, billions of years old, which all of the science points towards. So one of them was, if somebody said the Earth's actually really old, you'd say, oh yeah? Well, if the Earth is actually billions of years old, why aren't the oceans more salty? <laughs> I guess the theory was that there should, over the course of billions of years, been more salt coming down from the rivers and going into the oceans. Now, if that didn't blow their minds, <laughs> there was a follow-up, which was, oh yeah? If the Earth and the universe are so old, why is it that when the astronauts got to the moon, Neil Armstrong did not fall through 12 miles of moon dust when he stepped on the moon? Because we know that the rate at which moon dust accumulates on the moon should have led to that. That was the closer argument <laughs> that I took with me to the University of Washington to convince them about the age of the Earth. Now, if this had been Trump University, it might have worked. But... <laughs> I'm just saying, um, I, it was not, it's a multi-billion dollar research institution <laughs> that is staffed by some of the smartest people in the world. Fortunately, I did not study under those people because I was a communications major. which is almost like not going to college. I speak from, I speak from experience. Um, it was lucky for me because in the communications major, the age of the earth never came up in any of the classes. Or if it did, it was years later and I had had some time to hang around with normal people and learn some things about the world. Like for instance, the world is very old and also I cannot heal people. I guess if I think about what maybe one of my biggest takeaways from my seven years in undergrad was, <laughs> it was, it was that we talked about going against the grain and we, we salute those people, we're going to meet some of those people this hour, but there are times when it is really good to go with the grain. The grain may have gone to a real high school, had real books and real teachers, and may know what it's talking about. Our first guest went against the grain in a very public way recently when he took on the President of the United States of America. Well, that's our show. <laughs> he took on the President of the United States in court, and he won this, of course, over the now 
infamous executive order that sought to temporarily ban immigrants from seven largely Muslim nations. He's the Attorney General for the state of Washington, a one-time professional chess player, and the pride of Blanchett High School. Please welcome Bob Ferguson to LiveWire. That is not the typical attorney general welcome. I'm going to be honest with you, Bob. Thanks very much. Bob Ferguson, welcome to Livewire. Thanks so much. It's great to be here, yeah. You were the student body president at the University of Washington when you were there, right? I was, yeah. I guess you just came in knowing that the earth was more than 6,000 years old? I, I did. I, I did have that going for me, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it gave me a leg up over some of my competitors, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That really held back my chances of becoming student body president at the same institution. Um, what does an attorney general of a state actually do? Like, what is your job? Sure. So uh, we're the biggest law firm in the state. So we have about 600 lawyers and 600 professional staff. And so at a high level, we defend the state, right? We represent the governor, the legislature, every state board and commission. But we also, of course, represent the people on consumer protection. If a Wall Street bank is not playing by the rules, the attorney general is there to stand up for the people or to sue the president. That's required, yeah. <laughs> um, he said casually. <laughs> Usually when you're talking about suing the president, it's as they're strapping you to the gurney and loading you into the ambulance for the involuntary hold. For you, it's actually your job. Correct, correct. Um, what went through your mind, and do you actually remember where you were when you first heard the word Executive Order 13769? Yeah, um, I was actually out of town at a conference with other AGs, and uh, my team and I talked about that an executive order might be coming out. So, you know, we were prepared for it, and, uh, and you know, I, I appreciate the, the kind reception, but really it's the team in my office who worked around the clock for, for many, many weeks to really take on the executive order and to put a stop to it, yeah. And how is it that how is it uh, that Washington State ended up being first? Were you was you, was your office just quicker on the draw than other states? Is there something specific to Washington State that gave you guys a more compelling argument? Uh, it's a little hard to answer, but I think it's a combination of a few things. Number one, what I mentioned before, we had talked about it. We thought this was coming out, and the team knew. I was interested in that. Uh, number two, we had a great team of attorneys who were ready to sacrifice a weekend to, to go to work on it. You know, third, there was, you know, a decision had to be made to do it, and most legal experts at the time did not think a legal challenge would be successful, so we had to go against the grain. I promised to work that in, right? Against the grain. Thank you. Sort of, right? you had that pretty good, right? We'll get your check. So, <laughs> so it sounds like you and your office were trying to get ahead of this a little bit so that when it was actually announced, the executive order, you already had formulated somewhat of a plan. But is there anything about Washington State that makes it particularly, in your opinion, harmed by, by this proposal? I mean, I think there were many states that were equally harmed, but we have many colleges and universities where students, for example, or faculty members could not come back to the, uh, to the state of Washington. Uh, we had businesses that were adversely impacted. So, uh, but I think a lot of states were in, that, uh, were in that same category. But I just think we were, uh, we were ready, and the team was ready to work hard, and uh, we knew that every hour mattered. People were being turned away at our airports uh, around the country. Folks saw those scenes on the news, and we felt it was important to get in court right away. 
By the way, we have a Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson on Live Wire Radio coming to you from the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington. Why was this something that you found so troubling? Look, not only did I think it was unconstitutional and unlawful, but it made me mad. You know, it really angered me. Uh, it really made, it really angered me. And, and, you know, look, we are a nation of laws. And yes, the president has broad authority to issue an executive order, but what the president and his attorneys were arguing is that that authority is unreviewable. That's the word they used, and that's not how our system works. No one's above the law, and that includes you, it includes me, and includes the president of the United States. What about, what about the argument that this was a temporary ban? I think it was 120 days was proposed. This was not saying this will be the law of the land forever. This is just something that's odious, but we have to do it to sort of get control of the situation. Right. I mean, the only problem with that is you cannot violate someone's constitutional rights for a year, a month, a day, or an hour, right? If you're violating their constitutional rights, it's a violation. Yeah. Do you think extreme vetting would be a good name for a Pearl Jam cover band? <laughs> <laughs> I, think they, I think they should go back to their Mookie Blaylock original name. That's what All I would right. do if I was them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know That's your stuff. Yeah. We have Bob Ferguson here, Attorney General of Washington State. <laughs> Attorney General Ferguson's office uh, was uh, the first AG's office to challenge the executive order from the president. Uh, banning uh, people coming from certain countries, primarily Muslim countries. I, I, was, I listened to the hearing in front of the Ninth, mm -hmm. uh, it's the Ninth, ninth Circuit. Circuit Court of Appeals, yeah. And it was, it was pretty crazy because I think you had a lot of people in America listening to this conference call <laughs> that had huge implications, yeah. and I believe it was one of your associates was actually making the, the argument there. But what was crazy to me was like people would do the thing where you start talking over each other, then you both stop for too long. And then you start again, and you're talking over each other. Right. I was like, this feels like a conference call I've been on, but the stakes are <laughs> extremely high. They don't have Skype or something for that. I mean, this is the law of the land. They do it on the phone. I don't think they're used to having millions of people listening in, but the guy who did the oral argument is my solicitor general, Noah Purcell, who uh, grew up... And... Uh, no was a uh, no was Here, a I thought getting right. into radio was going to make me a hit with the ladies. <laughs> I didn't know it's, I needed to become an associate you have, AG. You have to be a lawyer, yeah. 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 Was he on like a regular phone or did he have one of those Time Life headset things on? You know, I think he was just on a regular phone, Luke. Old I school, yeah. I like it. Yeah. But we did not tell him it was being essentially aired live on CNN. See, he did not, <laughs> he didn't know that till it was all over. Really? Which, yeah, yeah. What yeah. was his reaction when he came out and you guys were like, oh, there, by the way, uh, you're famous? He was, uh, he was taken aback by that. Yeah, he was. <laughs> I, yeah, I thought it was interesting that you had, uh, you know, one of your associates do this as opposed to you, the attorney general. That was like Russell Wilson having Marshawn Lynch throw a pass. Uh, no, no, it's, uh, I, look, it was, uh, uh, it was a pretty intense oral argument, and, uh, you know, Noah's a very brilliant lawyer. He's the most brilliant lawyer I've ever met, and so he was the right guy to do it. Uh, he did it, he obviously did an effective job. Um, the, without getting too technical, I guess, can you just explain where things are actually at? Because clearly this crowd thinks that Trump got impeached. <laughs> but, in fact, things are more complicated sure. legally with this. Can you bring us up to speed on the reality of the situation? So, real quickly, on the first travel ban, uh, we won in the court. He appealed to the Court of Appeals. We won there. Uh, the president then put out a tweet saying, see you in court, uh, to, which I, yeah, to, which I, to which I said I was at a press conference. We just won on the Ninth Circuit, and a reporter said, Bob, the president just tweeted. He said, see you in court. And I said, well, 
we've seen him in court twice and we're two for two. I'm not sure. Someone needs to tell him, right? So he, he did, so, so, so they did not appeal that case. Uh, the federal government sent a check to the state of Washington for our costs for having to file our appeal. Oh, wow. I, I won't, I won't confirm this on, on live radio, Luke, but I may be framing that check and putting it in my office. That's, that's what huh. I made up. Yeah. And so that first one is all over. Now they did a revised travel ban. Right. That's been stopped in courts in Hawaii and in uh, Maryland. And so that's up on appeal to the courts of appeals and will ultimately be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm quite sure. So the specific challenge that you brought yeah. essentially was victorious because oh. that version of the travel ban... Uh, no longer exists. It's not look, working its way through any courts. It's over with. It, it's now over. there's version two. Look, there's a reason why they did not appeal that to the U.S. Supreme Court. They were going to lose. And so, no, that first one's uh, over. They revised it. And they did make some significant changes that uh, help hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, so it's a more narrow travel ban, but we think it is still unconstitutional. So you, the revised travel ban, you also don't agree with, even though there have been adjustments made to it. Correct. It's not that I don't just agree with it. I think it's unconstitutional. And so we challenged it on those grounds as well. And so the judge in our case did not make a decision because other courts had already ruled that revised travel ban uh, could not go forward. Uh, the stranger newspaper here in Seattle <laughs> recently called you a heartthrob. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and somebody else... So, so, somebody, else said, somebody else said in an interview that you have a Harry Potter quality about you. Uh, <laughs> My, 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 Is this all going to your head a little bit, Attorney General? Uh, my nine-year-old twins thought it was pretty cool, the Harry Potter thing. They thought that was cool. So that, that, I, I got raised in their eyes with that one, yeah. Um, there have been also rumors that you might someday run for governor of the state of Washington, which I wouldn't imagine you would... Even if you were thinking about doing that, I highly doubt you would tell us now here on this public radio show. Well, I, I thought we should just do it right here and right now, right? Let's just get it done. Are you, right? are you yeah, comfortable no, announcing no, that? It's, uh, no, look, I, when I ran for attorney general uh, five years ago, I would often tell groups that the attorney general was the most consequential elected official in the state, and people always gave me a funny look. When I say that now, nobody gives me a funny look. Wow. Right? I really think it is. Yeah. Well, if you change your mind... <laughs> Uh, and you do become governor of the state, will you come back we'll on right live here will in the you? Neptune? Yeah. That's a promise. That's a promise. Okay? That's a promise. Bob Ferguson, <laughs> currently the Attorney General of Washington Hi. State. Livewire gets support from Fully. Fully makes desks and chairs and things that keep your body moving. Don't buy into this notion that just because you work a regular job, maybe uh, in front of a computer for hours at a time, that you have to just give in to being sedentary. Fully makes all kinds of amazing stuff. Stuff I'm using as I record this. Guess what? I'm sitting on a TikTok stool rocker right now. Can you hear the energy in my voice? Can you hear the creativity flowing through my brain? thanks to the fact that I am in movement still. Uh, keep yourself moving, keep your brain working, and keep yourself on the road to health by going to fully.com slash livewire to find out more. This is Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is Against the Grain, and we asked the crowd here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle what their most unpopular opinion is. People filled out cards, they passed them to the front, and our announcer, Jason Rouse, has a few of them. He's going to share with us. What do you got, yeah. Jason? Well, we have one. It, it, it's unsigned, but it says, 
Uh, I like my mustache. <laughs> I feel like this one might be easy to spot in the wild. Can we bring the house lights up? There we are. Look to your right and then look to your left. Spot a funky mustache. And I think we have a winner. That's your guy or gal. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Shelby writes, I like my boyfriend's mother. That's an unpopular opinion, apparently. Who's that unpopular with? I don't know. Uh, apparently, everyone that knows Shelby's uh, boyfriend's mother. Man. That's rough. I think, I think in-laws get yeah. a bad rap. Personally. I think Linda's doing a great job. I don't know why my, she gets a My in-laws, rap. who are actually here for this taping, I'm yeah. not just saying this because they're here, but they're like, I'd trade them for my real family in a friggin' minute. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to my real family that's also here. Sorry, Hannah. That's all right. Um, finally, Christine writes, wine should not taste like oak. And I, and I just want to say, yeah, maybe she's not drinking wine or she's doing <laughs> something terribly wrong. Yeah. I guess next you're going to say mad dog shouldn't taste like 2020. <laughs> All right, those are some unpopular opinions from the crowd here at the Neptune Theater. Thank you for sharing with us. All right, next up on Livewire, it's someone who's made his living and also the lives of a lot of other people measurably better by going against the grain. 25 or so years ago, Dan Savage was working at a video store in Madison, Wisconsin, when one of his regular customers announced he was moving to Seattle to start an alternative newspaper. Savage told him the paper should have an advice column and volunteer to services, and Savage Love was born. These days, there's also the Savage Lovecast, the It Gets Better campaign, and a whole slew of popular books and projects. Please welcome the always fascinating Dan Savage to Livewire. Dan, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me back. How long have you been writing Savage Love now? I've been writing Savage Love for 26 years. I now get letters from people who are the children of people I was giving advice to back before they were parents who are adults now. And that freaks me out. Like, I'm talking yeah. to a 22-year-old who, say, who says, my parents were reading you before I was born. You may have helped create those children if you gave good advice. Are you a very sexually liberated person yourself, or are you just comfortable talking about sex in a way that's different than some people? Like, what made you so good at, at writing this column for all these years? Uh, well, I think what made me good at it was, was that initially I was gay, <laughs> and still am. But, you know, originally the column was a joke. I was going to write uh, sex advice for straight people, even though I was a gay guy. Uh, and, you know, if you're gay, you've kind of given yourself permission to do this thing that a lot of people would rather you not do in bed and to tell your parents about it. Uh, and it put me in this good position to look at straight people and say, oh, you want to try this, that, or the other? <laughs> go ahead. Uh, that's not a big deal. You should, you should go for it. Have you ever given some really bad advice that you now, looking back on it, you regret or you'd like to retract? Yeah, of course. Anybody who's been writing as long as I've been writing uh, has gotten it wrong. Anybody who runs their mouth for a living occasionally runs themselves into a ditch. Um, you know, I wasn't always uh, as informed as I should be about gender. I don't think any of us were 25 years ago. Uh, or trans issues or the existence of male bisexuality, which I totally uh, think is a thing now. Um, but you used to not think that was a thing, right? I used to have my doubts, but that was just a, as a gay guy projecting that onto bi guys because so many gay guys say they're bi before they come out as gay and then make this assumption that all bi guys are just going to be gay someday like you. And that's so unfair because that's, 
gay people saying to bi people, you're lying because we gay people lied. So you must be lying. And so that was just a bit of projection and sort of faulty logic that a lot of us were trapped in and have now found our way out of. But my favorite example is always, uh, I once responded to a letter that I, when I first started taking email, that's how long I've been writing my column, there was no email at the beginning. And I responded- This was right after you guys would get it by Raven? Yeah, we would. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I responded to this letter, and then three months later, I accidentally, looking through the email and searching for a word, responded to that letter again and gave the opposite advice. Wow. Which just goes to show you should never listen to an advice columnist, because we're just pulling it out of our butts at the moment that we have to file a column. You have started, and, and, and you and your husband, Terry, uh, together have, have done a number of really uh, great, important things, I think, not uh, the least of which is that it gets better campaign. Um, what's the current state of, of that project? Does it live on the internet? Do people still submit stuff to it? It, it lives on the internet. There's a, it gets better campaigns in, I think, 20 different countries now, um, all around the world. And for people that don't know, can you explain what the It Gets Better campaign kind of is? Uh, it was a campaign that Terry and I started in response to the suicide of one gay kid in 2010 in Indiana. Uh, where we wanted to encourage LGBT adults uh, to share their coping mechanisms, their strategies, how they got through it. You know, a lot of us were bullied and came through that, uh, and it got better for us because we made it better for ourselves, because we, you know, figured out what to say to our parents that would help. We figured out how to, you know, make better friends and get to a better place. And that wisdom sort of gets lost with us, because the gay and queer and lesbian and bi and trans adults don't raise the next generation of queer kids. A lot of those queer kids are born into straight families, almost all of them. And so they don't have an adult to turn to in their lives who can illuminate that path for them. And the It Gets Better campaign was about LGBT adults sharing their stories on social media, on YouTube, uh, and illuminating those paths for other queer kids out there who may be in parts of the country or stuck in families where there's nobody who's going to take them to a queer youth support group, where they have no queer role models, where there's no one they can turn to. Because when you think about it, uh, somebody who's... Uh, bullied or marginalized because of their race or her class or uh, their uh, religion goes home to parents and family of the same race, same class, same religion that they can open up to and ask for help and get advice from. Um, but a queer kid almost always goes home to no one they can open up to and sometimes tragically to parents who are also bullying them. And so the It Gets Better campaign was about queer adults speaking to queer kids, which is really radical. Some people look at the campaign and think it's sort of soft focus and ooey-gooey and up with people. But this is adult gay people and queer people saying, we're going to talk to your kids whether you want us to or not. We're going to talk to your gay kids and your trans kids. And we're going to go over the heads of bigoted and homophobic and transphobic parents and preachers and teachers and talk to them and reach them through social media and you can't stop us anymore from helping your kids whether you like it or not and whether you realize right now that you need our help or not we're going to help your kid despite your bigotry um this is sort of a, uh, this is a pretty big pivot, but uh, we heard you on a podcast recently called Twice Removed, and they brought you this poker chip that was from a gambling hall in Chicago that your grandfather or great-grandfather had uh, worked at. My great-grandfather and my great-granduncle owned and ran called the Corker Club on the south side of Chicago, which was a mobbed-up, uh, prohibition-era gambling hall where people were shot outside of it, and there was a quasi-Valentine's Day massacre at it. Uh, and my great-grandparents were criminals. 
Well, they had this poker chip from that establishment, and this is the quote that you said. You got kind of emotional over this poker chip, and you said, uh, we act like things are ephemera in our lives, but we're the ephemera in theirs. What is your take on the, it's very like Marie Kondo and this whole movement of decluttering our lives, getting rid of all stuff. Sounds like you're making a counter argument on this podcast you're on. What's your take on that? I'm a very clutter person. Um, I sit down to dinner uh, at a dining room table in my house here in Seattle that belonged to that great-grandparent, to my great-grandparent who is the crook, um, that my six generations now, my family have had Christmas dinner at this dining room table. I don't know their names, or I didn't know their names before that show, but I knew it was my great-grandparent's dining room table, and it made me feel connected to them sort of somehow. And I think possessions have a kind of... uh, a soul that we endow them with, really, with our regard and our knowledge uh, of where they came from and what they mean to us. And so decluttering, I think, is a way of sort of cutting out of little bits of your soul and throwing them away. Like, I moved through my house and I see uh, things that I got in Berlin when I lived in Berlin in the 80s, and I see things that uh, I picked up or, or bought or that remind me of, like, when my son was born um, or when Terry and I first got together. Uh, and they're just all over the house. And so it's sort of like living inside your journal. And for those of us who don't keep journals, things and objects that trigger uh, memories are really important to have around, and they make you feel very grounded. Um, speaking of, you mentioned your kid as part of that. You wrote a book called The Kid, which is about you and your husband adopting your son and everything you had to go through in order for that to happen. How old is he now, and how's he doing? Uh, he will be 20 on his next birthday. <laughs> These people just felt old. Imagine how I feel. Yeah. Um, he's doing great, and he's alive, so we, we won the parent contest. Yes, right. Because uh, there, there is a stage of life when your kid is a teenager where they are doing their best not to be alive for much longer, and he is through that, and we are relieved, and he's a, he's a great kid, and uh, we don't talk in great detail about him at his request. Well, that's... Uh, and, and, and that is actually, I guess, was my question, which you've sort of answered, which is, uh, has that been something that you've had to sort of figure out? Because this is, you know, I mean, I have a, I have a daughter who's 23 years old, and I talk about her a lot on the show, and, and she's generally, I think, okay with it. Yeah, but you're not a little straight boy, or he used to be little, now he's not so little, whose parent is, like, America's skeeziest gay sex advice columnist. <laughs> like... The last thing he wants is his gay dad talking about him on his sex podcast or in his sex advice column. So, you know, even if you, you know, I weren't who I am, you know, even if he didn't have the gayest parents in America, if you've ever seen my husband's Instagram feed, imagine being that person's child. Even if we weren't his parents, there's a reason why you see so many memoirists. I wrote a memoir about adopting him. It ends when he is just an infant, not even a year old. I wrote a memoir about Terry and I getting married, and DJ, uh, our son, is like eight or nine in that. There's a reason you don't see a lot of memoirs by people who write about their families that involve their children after their children realize they can take their parents off the record. Yeah. After their children begin to object to being written about, which he did. He's like, I don't want to be in any more books. And it's like, all right, you're not in any more books, and I don't ever want to be in your column. And it's like, you were never in my column. We've, we've asked the audience here at the Neptune Theater uh, their most unpopular opinion, because the theme is uh, against the grain. You've got a lot of opinions that a lot of people find uh, uh, unpopular for whatever reason, but, but stepping aside from the kind of political stuff and the, and, and the sexuality stuff, what's your most unpopular opinion? 
There's too much music. In the world. In the world. I, <laughs> there's too much music on elevators when you're sitting on a plane waiting for a takeoff. Like you're in a restaurant and there's nobody there and they're blasting music and you have to shout over the music to be heard. And then they turn the music up because you can't hear the music over all the people shouting over the music. And then you have to talk louder and they turn the music up. Just, I am that person who goes into a restaurant and marches up and says, turn the music down. And I am that person who, in a restaurant or a bar, will get on a stool and start unplugging speakers in the dining room when the waiters are gone. You know the irony, Dan, is I'm going to say your name and then they're going to play music kind of loud for you to leave the stage. Maybe just for me, it could be just some silence. Can we let, can we let him... I, I have to get an okay from the band and the producers. Can we let Dan Savage have his way here? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Savage. Thank you. Hey, it's Luke. Uh, This week, we'd like to send a special thanks and shout out to a couple of awesome listeners and supporters of the show. Of course, I'm talking about Matt Zadro of Portland, Oregon, and Mary Winzig, also of Portland, Oregon. It's support from members like Matt and Mary that keep Livewire going, so thank you so much. We're talking about going against the grain this week, and our next guest seems to take a special pleasure in going against the grain, whether it's the cult of the store anthropology or the tyranny of women enjoying relaxing baths. Jessie Klein is not having it, and she's not afraid to say it or write it in her hilarious book, You'll grow out of it. Please welcome from Inside Amy Schumer, and wait, wait, don't tell me, my friend Jesse Klein, the Livewire. Hi. Jesse Klein, welcome to Livewire. Oh my goodness, thank you for having me. Let's talk about uh, your time at SNL because you told me the story once uh-huh, uh-huh. of your you got a job writing there and then you decided to to basically leave and it was a hard decision, right? I mean, it was like you and your agent or a boyfriend. Yeah, I um I grew up on like worshiping SNL um, as like a little comedy nerd before comedy nerds were even a thing. I was, I think I was one of the first ones. Yeah, and then I ended up writing on that show. I got the job relatively late for, like, a lot of people who write there are, get that job, like, right out of college. And, yeah, I have so much respect for everyone who works there, and, like, it's a miracle the way that show is put together, and once you work there, you're even more in awe of how it's done. But I didn't flourish there, and one of the first things I realized... (laughs) Like, after the first week, so I guess I was, like, 34 when I worked there. Um, And I, like, almost the first day, I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot. I don't stay up late. (laughs) I forgot. I'm already too old for this. Because most, like, you know, most of the week you're there just very, like, Tuesday night you stay up all night long and then... Not to mention the show itself. The show itself is on so late and it's live and I had forgotten. Um, (laughs) 
No, I just, yeah, it was not, um, the diplomatic thing to say would be, it was not a fit for my skill set. Uh, the, the Saturday Night Live thing was interesting to me, because oh. even if it wasn't something that was exactly working the way you thought it would, a lot of people, if they dreamed of something for their whole life and they yeah. got there, they don't have the presence of mind to say, actually, this is not a good fit. They would just stay there. They'd be clinging to the side of the hill, holding onto a root, like, yeah. I'm never leaving this job because it's been my dream. Yeah. Oh, th I mean, for sure, there was a part of me that was like, I should cling to this hill as long as I can cling to the hill. Um, but then on the other hand, I was so tired. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I think, like, even pre-Trump, um, <laughs> I just always had a sense of, like, if you're really suffering... Like, and you don't need to suffer. Like, you should probably just stop suffering. Now that, that is a self-help book I, waiting to be written. Yeah. Um, our theme this week is against the grain. And we're talking about kind of when, when people go against what the prevailing yes. uh, kind of ideology and opinion is. And, and you did this in a major way, I thought, in The New Yorker last year when you wrote an amazing piece talking about why you do not like taking a relaxing hot bath. Not into it. Are you maybe the only person on the planet who feels this way? You know, I, um, I, got, a lot of, uh, I got a lot of responses to that piece. Some people were just like, F you. <laughs> F you forever. Other people were like, thank you for speaking our truth. <laughs> um, I, I, since I was a child, have always felt like taking a bath is sort of like making the world's saddest soup out of yourself. <laughs> like, it just feels like you are stewing in yourself. You have to take a shower after the bath. So, hygiene-wise, you go backwards in the bath. Uh, and, yeah, I just, I physically find it unpleasant and, um... And then there's something I, I get I, in the piece I was kind of trying to get at. Like, it feels there's like a cultural stereotype of just like women love to take a bath. And like, I kind of sometimes feel that like. That Calgon commercial did some real damage the, to the, the brand. The Calgon take me away thing was like a huge thing when I was growing up. I remember seeing Calgon take me away. I wanted to be a housewife. I didn't even. So Calgon would take me away. I was like a nine year old kid in Seattle. <laughs> Like, that looks awesome. Well, I want to eat a Mon Cherry and have Calgon take me away. Those were two products based on hiding from your children in the bathroom. It's, that, is, that is what, I think that is the, the emotional piece that bothers me is this idea that women have to, like, retreat into the water to escape their lives and families like a gazelle escaping a lion, the way yeah. they, they run, run, and it's like, we can just make it to the water. <laughs> We'll be all right. And then, Didn't go great for Virginia Woolf. Too soon. I guess. Too soon. I We're still getting over it. And nothing has happened between and then and now to take our minds off no, it. No, absolutely nothing. Nothing else bad has occurred. Um, it, th this book is so funny. I oh, really thanks, enjoyed Luke. reading it. And I, I appreciated your candor including the part where you talked about how your husband, you're, you're now married, and your husband was really gung-ho to have kids or a kid, and mm -hmm. you thought, my life will be over once I have a kid. You mm -hmm. now have a kid. Is your life over? <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, 
I paused because, and I don't, I mean, I can't, I feel like one thing I have now learned in my almost two years of having a child, it's like you have to really remember how specific your experience is to you. And like one of the most annoying things I feel like about being a parent, or this can be an experience in any aspect of life, is but like people kind of assuming you're having the same experience they are. So that caveat being said, I have found it, it's incredibly rewarding. I love my child. I'm so grateful I have my child. There are some ways in which my life is over, but there are many other ways in which it isn't. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like um, I'm still kind of figuring out an identity crisis a little bit of, like, who am I after having a child? I have found that to be kind of a, a fascinating journey. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? <laughs> um, who do I think I am? You know, I'm just a girl looking at a guy asking you to ask another question. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jesse Klein, uh, along with uh, talking about baths and many other things that are sort of held sacred by certain people in your book, uh, you also talk about anthropology, the store. I want to actually read... I'm going to read from your book the way you describe your obsession with the store anthropology. You call it a feeling more than a retail store. And you say, quote, as soon as I see their faux old barrel filled with faux vintage glass doorknobs or rest my eyes on a sweater with an embroidered kangaroo that has an actual pocket where the kangaroo's pocket is, I feel a sense of safety and inner peace. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. So we wanted to test your knowledge of anthropology. Can I say one other line that people have told me they feel like expresses anthropology for them that I am proud of? I did also write that every anthropology feels like the manger that Zoe Deschanel was born in. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. (laughs) We wanted to test your knowledge of anthropology, and so we came up with a little quiz. Oh, wow. It is... Uh, items that are actually for sale in anthropology and items that we made up. Oh, And okay. we're calling it Anthropology or Shamthropology. I totally get that title. I love yeah. what you've done with the word. One play. of them is Anthropology. The other one is Shamthropology. I understand. Congratulations. So you have to figure well out what is real and what is not real. Okay. Is this so it's multiple choice format? Is that no, where we're going? No, it's just, just real this. or not real. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Metropolitan Cement Box, $198. That's a real thing. That is absolutely a real thing. And it is just a cement box, apparently. That is $198. Yeah. I'm going to go get drunk and buy it online tonight, I'm sure. The shipping is going to be murder on that. I'll return it. I'm going to buy it and return it. Here's another one. Reclaimed wood Caribbean yes, love it's spell already necklace. The, yes. <laughs> yes. If it's reclaimed, it's theirs. <laughs> $634. I know how much it is, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, not a real thing, uh, although it does sound like something that would be there. It's more of a shamthropology, Jesse. I'm going to do something really against the grain right now and tell you that you're wrong. I know it's real. Okay. <laughs> and it might not be real yet. Mm-hmm. But it will be there. You're following the name it and claim it doctrine of anthropology. <laughs> if you can just think it and hope it into being, 
it will be. They're just on it. How about alpaca head, $3,200? She is, Jesse Klein is polling the audience here at the Neptune Theater. Sham, it's a sham. Alpaca head, $3,200, absolutely a real thing. Also, sold out. <laughs> I am not kidding you. This is the truth. Please tell me that we get to play this game for another seven hours. Oh, yeah. We got a lot. We got a lot of these to get and through. And you guys can stay or go. But Luke and I are finishing yes. the game. Uh, how about blown glass angel breath doorknob, $96? You know, here's the thing I'm going to say about that. Everything up until the price, I'm like, yes, very much a thing. I have bought glass doorknobs from Anthropology, and they're usually at a much more reasonable price point, like a nine or a ten dollars for a glass knob. It tops a thirty-six. But maybe there's something really special about this one. Maybe real? the angel's breath. Real? You're going to go real, and you are going to go wrong. That no, is made I, up. But you know, you you guys can tell I kind of knew. Yes. You were using very sound logic to, to think through the problem. All right, Nothing here we go. has ever mattered more to me than this moment. <laughs> Easter Island ping pong table, $12,000. <laughs> I can clarify on this one. Okay. Ping pong table shaped like the outline of Easter Island, $12,000. Shim. Real. I'm going to give it to you. It is absolutely a real thing. I have seen a photo of it. Is it, it Sola? Uh, because it was, if it's not, they've I will the put one on layaway. <laughs> it started at $12,000, and they have actually put it down uh, for sale at $3,995. A steal. <laughs> It is the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen because I don't know if you know this about Easter Island, it's not shaped like a traditional ping pong table. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I wasn't sure if you were going to say, I don't know if you know this about ping pong, but I'm like, that, that's supposed to be a square. And it's not. It's the shape of Easter Island. It looks like the yeah. most maddening thing to play ping pong on. Yeah, that's horrible. Well, but no it, wonder they reduced the price. <laughs> Jesse Klein, ladies and gentlemen, her book is You'll Grow Out of It. <laughs> All right, our theme this week on Livewire is Against the Grain, and we've asked the audience here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle to tell us their most unpopular opinion. And Jason Rouse, our announcer, has collected some of those up. Yeah. What do you got, Jason? Well, Heather writes, penguins are evil. I don't... That I... is an unpopular opinion with me. Yeah, I don't... I, I've never really considered it, but I wouldn't say evil, Heather. I don't... I'm just going to leave What did a penguin alone. ever do to you? I know. They march. And they Although, fly. you know, in Heather's defense, we asked for an unpopular opinion, so I mean, she that is. satisfied really the request. I, I don't mean to make can't, that, can't that your problem, Heather. Eliza writes, sunny days are way too bright. <laughs> that, yeah. that is something you will only hear somebody in Seattle yeah, say. Yeah. Karen writes... Toilet paper rolls from behind and under. Whoa, this is insane, Karen. This is. 
Can we get Karen removed from the Neptune Theater, Can we please? That's, that's madness. You should be ashamed is... of yourself. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. Our musical guest this hour is a Livewire favorite. He's been called the future of rock by none other than Sir Mix-a-Lot himself. His newest album, which drops June 2nd, is titled Audio Paint Job. Please welcome the incredible Aaron Jones back to Livewire. Set me free, free just like the birds. But that's how it goes when it rains and pours, and nobody knows your pain. So play me a song, young blues man. Play away my sorrow with the fingers on your hands Cause only you, baby, you could understand That that's how it goes When it rains and pours Nobody knows your pain So tired of living this way. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of living this way. How you feel, Seattle?
in your soul Young blues man Play away my sorrow With the fingers on your hands Cause only you baby You could understand That that's how it goes When the rain's imposing Nobody knows Your pain Thank y'all so much. That's Aaron Jones right here on Livewire Radio. All right, friends. Well, that's about the end of the show. Let's tell you how this all came together this week. Big thanks to our guests, Dan Savage, Attorney General Bob Ferguson, Jesse Klein, and Aaron Jones. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon, the pride of Tacoma, Washington, is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. Caitlin Kunkel is the writer for the show. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ethan Fox Tucker, and Sam Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Ian Davidson and Christian Escobar did our house sound, and Jason Powers recorded the show this week. Thanks to Carlson Audio. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harkin is our marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operations manager. Additional funding by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the support of our listeners. Special thanks this week to Jen Gavlin from right here in Seattle, Washington. For more information about the show, to get our newsletter or get our podcast, go over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is... Uh, It would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.